0: Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out.
1: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpethanschel. It's a good day to be a New England Patriots fan. Last night, the team won its fifth Super Bowl in an incredible overtime win against the Atlanta Falcons. However, it's not been easy for all Pats fans to support the franchise. That's because some liberal fans of the team in New England have had a hard time stomaching quarterback Tom Brady, coach Bill Belichick, and team owner Robert Kraft's closeness with President Donald Trump. Now, coming up, we'll speak to two fans who've written about their unease over the closeness of New England's team with Trump. Can these liberal fans really separate politics from America's favorite pastime? Who knows? After last night's game, maybe all's forgiven. But first, we're tackling a more serious topic, and that's homelessness. Connecticut and other states are making great progress reducing chronic homelessness among adults, but young people are also at risk. Today, where we live, we find out more about efforts to address this problem, especially among 18 to 24 year olds. Are you a young adult who has experienced homelessness? Did you know where to turn for help? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome back into the studio Lisa Tupper-Bates. She's executive director of Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So we're talking to you just a couple of weeks after um, the annual point-in-time count. Remind us what that is.
2: Well, thanks. The point in time count is a national exercise. It's a one-day census of homelessness. So we just completed the 2017 count on January 24th.
1: And can you give us an idea of what homelessness looks like? Um, I know there's a lot of attention, again, on uh, progress in the state of Connecticut with um, ending what they call uh, chronic homelessness among adults. But today we're focusing on youth. So t- give us a picture.
2: That's right. Uh, and the, the regular point in time, Count Lucy, focuses primarily on adults and families headed by adults. And I'm glad to tell you that for the last four years, we've seen some great reductions in overall homelessness in those populations. 2016 was our lowest count of homelessness ever uh, since we've done the point-in-time count and uh, reflected four years of consistent decline in those numbers, and that's terrific. Uh, But what the regular point-in-time count does not do very well is tell us about youth homelessness. And Lucy, that's because uh, young people who are homeless are, uh, are largely a hidden population. They do not seek the same services. They, do not, uh, they don't find or seek to, to find shelter in the emergency shelters that serve adults. Uh, so it is harder to count them. It's harder to find them. It can be even harder to connect with them to offer help.
1: We're hearing stats from the U.S. Department of Ed that, you know, homelessness among youth and young adults has been increasing while chronic homelessness among adults is decreasing. Is that is that, in fact, true? And when we're talking about numbers, what does it look like here in Connecticut?
2: Well, you know, I, I would hesitate to be able to tell you whether it's increased in Connecticut, and that's largely because we, we don't have very good data in this area. The first statewide count of youth homelessness in Connecticut uh, we completed in 2015, and that count gave us some really important information, uh, but it's really a starting point. Uh, we found that about 3,000 youth were either homeless or unstably housed, And we also learned uh, a bit about what their lives are like. 40% indicated that they had had no permanent place to live for over a year. Um, 30% had a history of engagement with DCF. About a quarter had criminal justice involvement. Uh, And about 25% of those who were literally homeless uh, were youth who self-designated as LGBTQA. Uh, And that tells us something important, I think. You mentioned the
1: youth count. So again, explain to us, um, obviously, point in time is one night or one day um, out of a year. But where do you go to reach these
2: young people who you say are very hard to track? That's right. So uh, this year, 2017, we just completed our second statewide youth count. And uh, to do that, we actually had about 300 volunteers across the state working for a week instead of just one night. We needed to have a longer time so that we did have the opportunity to try and connect with those youth. Uh, And we used a a variety of different ways to do that. We had uh, teams in each region identifying what we call hotspots, locations where they might find homeless youth throughout that week. Uh, We engaged with staff at agencies that serve or would be in contact with uh, housing unstable or homeless youth. And we worked uh, in concert with our schools and had what we called come-and-be-counted sites uh, to try and get young people uh, to identify at those sites throughout the week. This is where we live.
1: I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about youth homelessness, homelessness among not only youth but young adults between the ages of 18 and 24. Uh, You can join the conversation uh, as we explore what the state and its nonprofit partners are doing to help these young people, that number 860-275-7266. I wanted to bring into the conversation now someone who understands this issue firsthand, uh, Artemis Fontaine, a young person who's experienced homelessness, um, living, I believe, in Hartford now. Artemis, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: So tell us uh, when you first became homeless.
3: Well, I first became homeless in uh, late 2013, early 2014. Uh, it was just with a dispute with my parents and one thing led to another and I was living out of my car.
1: Can you talk more specifically about when you say
3: dispute, was it just tensions at home that you ended up um, leaving? It was multiple rising tensions, a uh, uh, kind of a spat with my dad about some of the living conditions, being post high school but pre-college, as well as my struggle with mental illness and my own uh, coming out uh, with my sexual identity and my gender identity. So you identify as transgender,
1: so this was part of the tension with your family. Exactly. So um, it led you to leave. What did you do, where did you go?
3: Well, most nights I stayed with a friend or uh, with a friend's family. But um, as time moves on, you kind of start running out of resources, running out of people who will welcome you into your home. And as that began to happen, I started moving more towards staying in my car. Or um, I never got so far as to have to sleep outside. But ultimately, that's what it would have boiled down to. And how old are you now? 21.
1: So you must have heard that there are programs out there to help people, um, but maybe never imagined that you would be dealing with being homeless. Um, Did you feel, was it hard for you to
3: think about where, where do I go for help or who do I call? It was actually the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't feel that I needed help because I felt that it was a temporary situation, something that I could rectify by myself in a day, two days, a week. But it turned into a much longer bout, about two or three months
1: Lisa Tepper Bates again is here. She's the executive director of Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. What you're hearing is that common among young people? They think, well, this is just temporary. I have someone that I can, you know, couch surf at their home, but then they realize that, you know, maybe they're, um, they feel like they're putting that person out or people maybe becoming impatient because they're still sticking around. They don't know how to help. Um, what are you hearing from these youth when you do the youth count?
2: No, that's exactly right. And what we hear is young people who are, for various reasons, reluctant to seek help. Uh, You know, Like Artemis, they might think, I'm going to take care of this. I'm okay. I can figure it out. Uh, Sometimes we see youth who do not want to identify as housing unstable because they're afraid they won't be able to stay in their school. Uh, Other youth might be concerned that if they identify to a teacher or or another adult in a position of authority, uh, that it might mean that DCF will be called in, and, and that's not something that they want. And uh, so there are a variety of reasons that we find that it can be very challenging to reach out to youth. Uh, and for that reason, Lucy, we're working um, with the schools to get that education out there for students and for teachers and for faculty and administrators so that they can understand what the legal rights of young people experiencing homelessness are and so that those young people have a way to understand what resources there are to help Mm -hmm. them. Uh, And that information um, is built into what we call the School Engagement Packet, which we launched with Governor Malloy's help in Meriden in December. Uh, And uh, it's available at the website that we have developed with the advice of young people with lived experience. And that website is youth-help.org. So resources for schools, resources for young people, and resources for organizations that may be working with folks like Artemis. Well, We just heard Artemis say that um, when she was struggling with not having a place to go,
1: uh, you know, maybe staying with a friend, eventually sleeping um, in her car, you know, again, asking for help, she said, was the furthest thing from her mind. So how do you engage with young
3: people? I mean, you mentioned this tool with schools, but is that enough? I'll ask Artemis first what you think about that approach. So at the time that I was homeless, I wasn't in school. And in fact, I wasn't attached to any kind of institution. So reaching out to me would have been incredibly difficult, and I think that's why it's important that we have that emphasis on the, the schools so that when you are in school and you hear about these things, then they make a lasting impression and you know that it's not shameful and it will be helpful to you.
1: So I guess the next question is, so for the, the youth that fall where Artemis falls, like right after 18 to 24,
2: how do, how do you connect with them? Yeah. Uh, And that's right, Lucy. What we have to do to connect with other youth who, as Artemis are out of school, is uh, work more creatively. And uh, across the state of Connecticut, we are engaging with our communities to build uh, specialized teams of all of the youth-serving agencies so that they can come together and share information on where might they be able to encounter young people who are homeless – how can they work together to reach out to those young people not engaged in school and, and re-engage them? Maybe they need to go back to school in addition to having help with housing. Uh, maybe they need help to connect to employment services. Uh, so we are building these teams across the state and uh, those are called Youth Engagement Team Initiatives or mm-hmm. Yetis and uh, they drove the youth count and we're gonna build on that momentum, that tremendous effort of 300 plus volunteers in 65 uh, cities and towns across the state uh, to develop a better network so that there is help for young people like Artemis, so Artemis, um,
1: how long were you, you know, living in your car before you reached that breaking point before you were connected um, to a nonprofit?
3: so it it definitely varied on the night. Um, I actually didn't ultimately connect the first time that I was homeless. Um, I actually had a family member reach out to me and and allow me to stay with them for an extended period of time. But the second time around, um, I had never imagined that it would happen again. And at this point, I was ready to accept help. And once I was ready to accept help, it was easy to find it within a couple of weeks.
1: And we're going to hear more about that program that helped you. It's with the connection. Tell
3: us a little bit about the group. So they're a fantastic little well, not so little group. Um, they uh, are a rehousing program that allow uh, people who've come into kinds of situations that I was in, uh, and they give them a place to stay. They have crisis apartments to really rapidly rehouse somebody and give them somewhere safe and warm to stay. And then also ultimately over a two-year period, make sure that they have some sort of foundation for themselves, their own apartment, um, or trying to repair relationships with family members so that they can stay somewhere, and just making sure that whoever it is that they take into their program is safe and as happy as they can be.
1: That's Artemis Fontaine, a young adult in Connecticut who's experienced homelessness. Also in studio with me today, Lisa Tupper-Bates, Executive Director of Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. We're talking about youth homelessness today to find out, you know, what the state and its nonprofit partners, again, are doing to help this population. Often young people, as we hear, couch surf. They don't realize how precarious their situation is. Um, Artemis has got help from the nonprofit, The Connection. We're going to hear from them. And what other programs exist to help youth find shelter and independence? We'll find out more after the break. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's aiming to end family and youth homelessness by 2020. What does homelessness among young people look like? That's what we're talking about today. In studio with me is Artemis Fontaine. Uh, She's a Connecticut resident, formerly homeless, and she's participating in a program at The Connection called The Start Program. Also with me, Lisa Tupper-Bates, executive director of Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. And joining us on the phone now is John Lawler. He directs the homeless youth and young adult services at the nonprofit. The Connection Incorporated. John, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thank you very much for having me.
1: So we've heard a little bit from Artemis about um, how she ended up homeless and how she ended up getting connected to the connection. Tell us about this nonprofit for our listeners who who don't know about your history and how you're working with young adults. Sure.
0: Well, our program started about five years ago. Um, And we work with uh, youth uh, all across the state. We operate statewide. We're currently working with about 84 youth. I think we've served uh, just under 120 since July. Um, And really we work with individuals who are uh, between the ages of 18 to 24 years old who are homeless or unstably or unsafely housed. Um, We we can provide a few different services. We do run a, a type of young adult shelter in the Hartford area. Um, for youth age 18 to 24 and we're also in the process of uh, recruiting what's called host homes or host families uh, for those homeless youth that would be under the age of 18. Um, and the bulk of what our program uh, does in the other program track is pretty much what's known as a, as a rapid rehousing program um, and what that is is basically we um, work with someone between the age of 18 to 24 who's homeless, um, we help them to try to find an apartment of their choosing in the community. Uh, And we really try to, uh, through case management services and also financial assistance, try to um, strip down some of the barriers towards kind of getting the stable housing. So we'll help them with the cost of security deposit. We'll help a young person with the uh, cost of rent. Um, And we can do this for up to a period, about uh, one to two years. Um, But what we found works with uh, working with this population is that the amount of financial assistance that will provide will gradually decrease over time. So that way they kind of get the, the growing sense of financial responsibility uh, that comes with being, uh, you know, an independent adult, or as I always call it, a.k.a. the worst part of being an adult. Um, so we do this along with pretty intensive case management services that are really tailored to the individual, uh, a lot of work on on what their goals are, what's going to help them get uh, stable and, and um, uh, kind of find permanency somewhere.
1: John, um, uh, yeah. so and we we know there's services for um, youth under 18, but the 18 to 24 um, the age group, so this often they're more vulnerable? Are there not as many services or not ways to connect with them? Yeah, well,
0: they fall in this uh, rather odd gray area in that they're eligible for all the adult um, housing and homeless services, uh, but those services that have been built years and years and years ago weren't necessarily tailored towards the 18 to 24 crowd. Um, so we don't see them trying to engage in those particular you know, the existing adult shelters, um, et cetera. So what we found is that they would seek alternative means to find their housing, usually in pretty high-risk situations. Uh, so uh, situations like couch surfing, living out of your car, et cetera. Um, so with our particular program, we, we tried to build, um, uh, you know, these housing services under the premise of what would someone between the ages of 18 and 24 want to engage in. Um, So both of the, most of the programs that we run are not, are are fairly atypical for the homeless system, I'd say, in terms of how they're structured, how they're modeled. Um, There's really a large youth governance part to our program where um, when we get stumped on something on the program level, we kind of put it out to the individuals who are serving uh, for guidance on on how how to structure it, how to fix it. Mm
1: -hmm. And then I'll turn back to Artemis Fontaine again. um, This is a young person who's experienced homelessness, is getting help uh, through the Connection, the START program. Um, Artemis, um, you know, when you got connected to the Connection and they gave you, you know, a lot of this support, I mean, what are you, how are you doing now? Where are you? Are you able to be connected to work and and to learn to be independent?
3: Yeah, so I'm actually working at a research institute on the other side of Hartford, the Institute for Community Research, as well as currently applying for colleges right now. So... So it's,
1: you've, you've been able to find some success.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And um, John, obviously, you're, you've been working with young people for some time. Uh, it's great to hear that Artemis is doing well. But you know what are some of the barriers, the challenges of helping, uh, as you said, this independent group, eighteen to twenty-four, really get on their feet.
0: Um, I think a lot of it has to do with some pretty being able to provide some pretty tailored and individualized services. So most of the youth that come into our program have no income; they have no employment um... And, and really limited employment history um... but in terms of right now we have eighty eight percent of our young people are either employed or in school um... so a lot of it just has to do with being able to provide them with uh, with someone that can work with them to develop those skills eighteen to twenty four just from the brain development aspect is a really key age it's a a lot of good habits can be uh, installed during that age range, um, so we just do a lot of work along those lines. And what we find is that youth are motivated to return to school. They are motivated to become employed. They want to be, um, you know, stable and very productive citizens. It's just a matter of having that one go-to person that they feel safe with, um, and, and that can help guide them through the process, and that can help them catch when when little catch them when little mistakes occur, which is a, a hallmark of this age group.
1: And how how is this program paid for?
0: Uh, we are uh, paid for through the state of Connecticut, currently through uh, Department of Children and Families. Okay. Um, but we can work with uh, youth regardless of if they're involved with the system or not.
1: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking at youth homelessness. We heard earlier from our guest Artemis that she's transgender. That led to tension within her family. Eventually she found herself staying with friends and then living in her car. Um, Now she's doing well with the help of The Connection, a nonprofit. Um, Joining the conversation now is Robin McHalen. She's founder and executive director of True Colors Incorporated. This is an advocacy group for LGBTQ young people. Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. We wanted to, you know, get an idea of uh, youth homelessness and and we we've heard that, you know, it is more common among LGBTQ youth. Tell us about, you know, what the numbers show you. What
4: the numbers show us is that LGB, LGB lesbian gay bisexual youth represent somewhere between 5 and 9% of the population depending upon what study you look at. Transgender youth, gender fluid youth, represent under 1% of the population, but together they represent between 25 and 40% of the homeless youth population. And I think uh, Lisa said that in Connecticut, it was the the first study that was about 25%. But 25 to 40%, they represent 20% of the youth in juvenile justice. Um, they can represent 17 to 20% of the youth in child welfare. and you know, there are certain situations that put LGBTQ youth at higher risk of homelessness. Most often, family rejection or family tension around their identity, um, school harassment um, and lack of safety at school that leads to them being truant or running away. Um, and then often, even if they engage with the services, the services are not seen as safe for them. I think that you know Connecticut has done a tremendous job the connection um in particular um youth continuum in New Haven and others that have really worked to create safe and affirming um, programming for lGBTq youth, but there's an inherent distrust of the system um because the system, in very many cases, especially if they get connected with the system, the system is as rejecting and assaultive and um traumatizing as they had experienced at
3: home so um and Artemis did, did did you feel that distrust i did not but the first um resource that i got in touch with was the connection and i think that they uh, can be a far cry from the real strict uh government programs as opposed to their current i mean i'm right. Currently working uh, at my research institute on actually evaluating them, and um, I mean, there's a reason that they are doing so well. is is that it's it's truly a an inventive new program that um, has been helping a lot of youth in the state.
1: Now Robin, at True Colors, I know you do a lot of training with different groups. I mean, right. what what's being done to help um, foster more trust within this population, knowing that they can go for help and that there's going to be service providers that understand?
4: I think that, uh, you know, we've been doing training since, you know, probably 1994 around this issue and that there are lots of places. Yeah, I think that the Connection, Inc. is really a model um a model program in that they did an awful lot of training. They did an awful lot of, of, you know, feedback with the young people that they serve, that they've really, you know, invested in serving the youth that they serve, you know, as effectively as as humanly possible. But one of the issues I think also is that there's just not enough beds. you know, that we've got, there's, I don't know how many, John, you probably know how many young people are on your waiting list um, that, that it is really, I mean, there's the number of young people who need services exceeds the services um, that exist. And when they're on their on a waiting list, especially for LGBT youth, where they may not have other family support or other places where they could go, some of our kids resort to survival skills that put them at pretty significant risk.
1: Uh, Lisa, Lisa Tupper Bates is here from the Connecticut Coalition and Homelessness. We just have a couple minutes left. How does the state address um, not having enough of these beds to, to help these these young people?
2: Yeah, I just want to echo what both John and Robin said, and that is that we we have too few of the emergency shelter beds and, and we right now have too few of these slots in the terrific connection program that is rehousing. Uh, these homeless youth. The exciting thing, though, Lucy, is that Connecticut just won a $6.5 million grant from the federal government over two years, the largest grant awarded in the nation under the Youth Homelessness Demonstration Project. And to develop the, uh, the program to use those funds, we will be drawing on successful experiences like the connections, uh, listening to the voices of young people who have that lived experience and uh, seeking to build more resources so that we can respond to their needs and help them reach stability in housing.
1: And I want to thank Lisa Tupper Bates, Executive Director of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Um, Robin, I'll turn to you real quick. Um, so that's great that there's um, some money coming towards this initiative. Um, has the state been doing enough to, to help uh, young people, especially LGBTQ youth?
4: Um, no, <laughs> I think that there's, you know, well, there's people that are well intentioned, but I think that there are still a lot of gaps, specifically for LGBTQ. Um, youth and specifically for youth 18 to 24, um, especially young people that are aging out of um, DCF, that a lot of the young people that are aging out of DCF have experienced tremendous amounts of trauma, um, have significant mental health um, issues, and it often, um, you know, our experience is that often they're homeless within a year or two after aging out. So, you know, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done um, I think the transition from DCF to Demus or the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services needs to be handled more effectively for young people. Um, I think you know that we there's been more dollars that have been coming, and I know there's some projects that are happening. Um, that are going to specifically be targeting LGBTQ youth, and that's an exciting, so it's exciting an, piece. But
1: it sounds uh, like we'll have to follow up. Then I want to thank Robin McHaylin, founder and executive director of True Colors. Thank you so much. Thank you. Also, John Lawler, Director of Homeless Youth and Young Adult Services at The Connection. And we want to thank Artemis Fontaine. Thank you so much for coming in to share um, your personal story. And we're glad to hear that you're doing well and on a path of success. I appreciate the opportunity. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. It's our winter membership drive. If you appreciate this show and all we do at WMPR, we need your support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nolpothanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the super minds of super agers. On the next Where We Live, we'll find out what science reveals about this unique group of older adults. Plus, from brain teasers to non-credit courses, we'll take a look at strategies that actually work to keep your mind healthy and sharp. And no, we're not talking about crossword puzzles. Join us tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, somehow, I got conned into talking about the New England Patriots today. As someone who grew up in Western PA and whose blood at one time ran black and gold, it's obvious why I've never rooted for the Patriots. However, that was some game last night. Quarterback Tom Brady solidified his status as a legend after bringing his team back from a 25-point deficit to win in overtime. Yes, the Patriots are the team everyone loves to hate, and it's safe to say most of the country was cheering on the Atlanta Falcons. But much has been written about the fact some liberal New England fans of the Patriots have felt some unease over their team's closeness with President Donald Trump. To be exact, Tom Brady, coach Bill Belichick, showed support for Trump during his campaign, and team owner Robert Kraft goes way back with him. We're wondering, does it really matter? Here are two writers who've asked themselves that very question. Joining us on the phone now is Jack Hamilton, pop critic for Slate, assistant professor of American Studies and Media Studies at the University of Virginia. He wrote how to pull for the Patriots, in the age of Trump, Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Also, Luke O'Neill, Boston-based writer for Esquire, author of the Washington Post piece "Rooting for Tom Brady Used to Be Easy Until Donald Trump Came Along." Luke, welcome to the show.
5: Hey there. Good morning.
1: I understand, Luke. You were at the game last night.
5: I was indeed, and it's uh, it's a little it was a little hard getting up for the interview this <laughs> morning after that <laughs> after everything last night. Well, but, we. Yeah,
1: We thank you for uh, calling in anyway. But I'll I'll start with Jack. Um, So you're a mass native. You live down in Virginia now?
6: Yeah, I live in in Charlottesville, Virginia. Not Patriots country.
1: (laughs) Not Patriots country. And you have always been a Pats fan, even back when they were pretty abysmal.
6: Yeah, I grew. I mean, I grew up in the '80s and, and '90s when, um, yeah, when the Patriots mostly swung between uh, mediocre and terrible. Um, you know, there were a few sort of there were there were two Super Bowl appearances uh, in that span, but both resulted uh, in them being on the the wrong end of blowouts. Um so yeah, it was definitely for, for most of my childhood being a Patriots fan. I mean I certainly rooted for them, but the idea that they were gonna be successful was sort of an afterthought.
1: <laughs> and it all changed in O two. <laughs>
6: yeah, definitely. That was uh that was certainly a, a, a
1: huge uh turning point. Now Luke, also a lifelong Patriots fan?
5: Yeah, that's right. Probably for about thirty years or so and uh certainly you know uh lived through some bad times like jack said but uh you know things things have become a little bit better you know since uh brady came along
1: (laughs) and you wrote uh luke in your piece that um you know you'd have uh, conversations with your dad about tom brady you know this is someone that you respected and idolized is that is that how your dad feels too
5: yeah yeah we both love him and you know anytime we talk about him i mean I'm sure you know you probably do this with with you know Steelers grades over the years with you with your uh, your family as well. So you know how it goes, but it's just uh, I don't know. It's it's just one of those like innocent tradi- you know traditions you can have with members of of your family that you know if you want to avoid politics, it's a good way to do it. Unfortunately, we we don't <laughs> seem to be able to separate the two this season.
1: Now, there have been some scandals in the past when we look at the Patriots' uh, um, um, history, and that doesn't seem to matter if you're a Patriots fan, right, with this idea of, of Spygate and Deflategate uh, most recently. Why is it different now that, um, you know, obviously Tom Brady and uh, Bill Belichick, also Robert Kraft, they, they all have this, uh, this connection to Donald Trump. They're friends with him. They've um, openly supported him. Why does that matter?
5: Well, to me, I—, I, I... This, the spy date and the deflake and all of that, I mean, it's pretty easy to, let's say even if they were true, which I'm not necessarily admitting because I'm still a patriot, <laughs> fan. It, it's, you know, those that seems like small stakes stuff and you can easily rationalize it away. Um, but when it's when we're seeing what's happening already under the first couple of weeks of, of President Trump, it's, it's not the type of thing that you can just sort of, you know, stick your fingers in your ears and close your eyes and pretend isn't there. And the fact is that, you know, these these three men are the, probably the three biggest celebrities that we have in New England. And uh, they either, you know, lent their support to Trump's campaign or didn't say anything against it, which in my mind is almost the same thing. Mm.
1: And Jack, how do you feel with, uh, you know, this uh, connection with Donald Trump and how that impacted your fandom?
6: Yeah, I mean, I would echo what, what Luke said. I mean, I think that yeah, there's something you know. The 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 sort of on-field controversies like Spygate and particularly Deflategate were just sort of so trivial and kind of ridiculous. Uh, and um, yeah, whereas this, and you know, it's like still within the the bounds of sports. You know, it's just like this is something that's uh, like sort of an on-field issue. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, particularly for New Englanders, which is, you know, I think likes to think of itself as a sort of progressive bastion of the country. There was something really, uh, yeah, really distasteful about the sort of, you know, open kind of flirting with, with Trumpism. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, having, you know, having this Super Bowl and, and this playoff run, you know, in the midst of, you know, the first few weeks of his Administration, which have just been kind of um, kind of catastrophic from a political and moral standpoint, I would say, <laughs> um, has made it. Yeah, it's definitely. You know, it's it's just the stakes are a lot higher. It's 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 real life. It's it's outside the realm of um, just kind of like you know sports. Mm.
1: And and Luke, you wrote that you know it's been bothersome to you that um, you know Brady took this apolitical stance, uh, given some of the things that uh, now President Trump has said during his campaign.
5: For sure, uh, and I don't even know for a fact that you know, Brady. W- w- we really don't know his politics, but I do know that if you are not uh, aghast or an op- by or an opponent of Donald Trump, then that's politics right there. Like so, you know, he, uh, the fact that he's not saying things, saying anything one way or the another gives me the answer that I need. He's willing to overlook all of these problems that are you know have already arisen under. Trump's administration and, and, and that's in itself as a political stance and I, I find it just so disappointing because I don't think that Brady seems like a genuinely decent human being and I know he does tons of charity work and and his wife seems like a lovely person and he's a great family man but I, I just don't I can't square that there's just this cognitive dissonance at work with with being friends with Trump and by the way I almost think it's worse to be friends with Trump than to have simply voted for him.
1: And we don't know um, how they voted, right, Jack?
6: <laughs>
5: yeah, there's never,
6: you know, they've they've all stopped short of, um, you know, they all stopped short of sort of openly, explicitly endorsing his his candidacy, which has definitely left for, you know, some kind of psychic r- wiggle room among
4: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> among myself
6: yeah. and and I think a lot of my friends. Um, but yeah, yeah, we don't know we don't know how they voted, and you know, Brady, uh, if, you know, I mean. I don't know Tom Brady at all personally, but you know from everything I've read about him, he definitely seems like someone who is not the most politically engaged. Um, you know. Yeah, like, do we really, really want his,
1: to hear him talk politics?
6: <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem to be where his priorities lie. But I, I totally agree with Luke that there's something, you know, for him to not, for him to not recognize the sort of seriousness of, you know, playing footsie with this guy is just is is, is kind of gross.
1: And remind us, Jack, of what uh, Coach Belichick did um, that was, I guess, surprising to people who think about him as, you know, being very focused and, you know, sticking, you know, not maybe being very political. But during the campaign, he actually wrote a letter showing that, you know, he was supportive of Donald Trump.
6: Yeah. I mean, this is one of the weirder things uh, that happened in this very weird campaign, I think. Um, the, yeah. A few days before the election, Trump was at a, at an event in New Hampshire, and he, he purported to read aloud a letter of support that, that Bill Belichick had sent him. And I think most New Englanders thought it was just Trump was actually lying. Uh, certainly the, the, the letter that he quote-unquote read, um, did not sound at all like anything Bill Belichick would write, you know, it was la- layered with these Trumpian adjectives and, you know, tremendous and sort of like this just this weird, um, kind of weird language. But then uh, Belichick confirmed that he had written a letter of sort of support to Donald Trump. Um, I, again, I don't know if the what Trump actually read was the letter that Belichick sent him, but um Yeah.
1: This is where we live. I don't
5: believe it myself. I I still think that I'm sort of a conspiracy theorist on this. I I do think that Belichick did write him a letter, but I think Trump paraphrased it or, you know, sort of put it through the Trump translator. Yeah, uh, totally. And Belichick is just sort of such a weird kind of private guy that he didn't, he thought like correcting it would be more of a, make it more of a whole thing. So he just went along with it. Yeah,
6: that's exactly how I feel, too. I think that he kind of realized that, you know, injecting any more sort of, you know, controversy into it was just gonna it would be be a distraction from football (laughs) right
5: right
1: this is where we live i'm lucy nalpathanchel i'm speaking with uh, luke o'neill a boston-based writer for esquire Uh, he wrote a piece for the washington post called rooting for tom brady used to be easy until donald trump came along also jack hamilton pop critic for slate assistant professor of american studies and media studies at the university of virginia author of how to pull for the patriots in the age of trump so after last night's game again if you hate the patriots you hate them even more even though I think quarterback, again, uh, Tom Brady, is, is quite the legend now. Um, and I was looking at my Twitter and Facebook feeds last night, and people, whether they um, hate or love the Patriots, this one, obviously, you can tell. He writes, a, Pat, a Pats win tonight is a win for Trump's America, so no pressure, Falcons. Also, another one wrote, I feel traumatized all over again watching the Falcons blow a completely winnable game to the Trump-loving New England Patriots. So my question for both of you is, you know, how do, I mean, obviously, they're a dynasty. How do you, does it really matter? that um you know that again we have these very high profile people within the the franchise supporting trump does it matter how do they move how they move forward do the fans care that you've got your fifth super bowl ring
5: well uh, to me this this one i mean i i just witnessed the greatest comeback in super bowl history live from my the team i've loved my entire life and i'm not gonna lie i really it was an amazing experience It'd be, but uh, you know, it definitely it has is sort of tainted in a little way that that none of the other ones were. But I, I just want to say, I think it's crazy in a way that we we're all of a sudden applying these sort of uh, progressive liberal standards to to of all things football, <laughs> the most yeah. you know conservative uh, like sport in existence. It's not like like if you were going to come up with an image of a of a you know a conservative you know jerk uh, football coach is. Got to be right up there. I think it's just for for us that we wanted Brady, like we love Brady so much. We wanted him to be somehow like to transcend anything that <laughs> you know negative like this. So I think that's where it is for me. And it, it's projection and it's weird. I'm I'm uh, almost a 40 year old man and I shouldn't be caring what my you know my favorite quarterback thinks and does, but and yet we do. So here we are.
1: And Jack, how about you?
6: Yeah, I mean you know I think that. uh uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, look, like, I mean, I, I don't think that rooting for a sports team should ever be con, conflated with political activism of any type. It's basically the most passive thing you can possibly do. Um, if I, I think if I weren't from New England, I would absolutely hate the Patriots, and probably the, the Trump flirtations would, um, w- would make that even worse. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, look, like, I mean, I, I personally feel like, you know, I was sort of, I was rooting for them last night, certainly, I mean, with with some deep feelings of ambivalence. But, um, yeah, I don't think that it makes someone like a sort of traitor to progressive causes to support a football team. And exactly as as Luke said, I mean, this is like, I mean, if you're really concerned about the sort of politics of football, don't watch the NFL. I mean, this is like an incredibly reactionary league that has so many problems with it i mean the labor conditions are horrendous you know it's a it's a sort of oligarchy um and yeah i mean the militarism like there's just there's a lot of uh of of sort of issues in football i don't know that there's really a morally correct way to uh to watch professional
5: football yeah i agree there's no innocent football consumption yeah
1: i want to take a quick call from a listener chris we just have a minute go ahead with your comment
4: yeah
0: just wondered if uh, uh, the show has researched or if either of your guests knows if Tom Brady in particular um, has had uh, kind interactions with Barack Obama. One theory is that he uh, is just fundamentally kind of apolitical and just you know if if some big political figure comes along and says nice things about him, he's going to say, "Yay, I'm for you'
1: Well, thank you, Chris, for that comment. I think um, was it Jack or, or Luke? One of you did write about a trip to the White House that Tom Brady avoided. Yeah, yeah
5: he Brady skipped did. a visit. Oh, go oh. ahead, Jack. Sorry.
6: Go ahead, Jack. Oh yeah, yeah. He skipped a visit. I think after the after the twenty um, what was that twenty fifteen Super Bowl. Uh, yeah. he's He skipped the trip to the White House. Um, I don't know if that was a political stance. I mean, that was the only title that they've won in the Obama era. Um, he was sort of. Uh, uh, in a humorous detail seen at an Apple store buying like an Apple watch <laughs> while the team was at the, was at the White House. Um, so yeah, but That's I don't a know statement a political itself. <laughs> um, angle to that.
1: Well, I think we're out of time. I do want to thank again Jack Hamilton, pop critic for Slate. He wrote How to Pull for the Patriots in the Age of Trump. Jack, thanks so much for your time.
6: Thanks so much for having me
1: on. Also, Luke O'Neill, Boston-based writer for Esquire. He wrote for The Washington Post. Rooting for Tom Brady used to be easy until Donald Trump came along. I don't know, Luke, after last night's win, maybe all's forgiven.
5: Go Patriots, (laughs) I guess.
1: Well, thanks again. And thanks to our Steelers fan producer, Jeff Tyson, for pitching that segment. If you appreciate where we live, here's a number to call and thanks.